M-S-W Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 120 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, Allison. I'm Pete Struck. We have a lot to cover today, including eight, count them, eight new cooperators in the Fulton County District Attorney's investigation into Republican interference in the 2020 election, Trump's failure to hand over documents in the New York Attorney General civil fraud case, and a former FBI counterterrorism specialist charged in the attack on the Capitol. Yeah. And and not only that, Pete, we also have an old story concocted by congressional Republicans about a whistleblower. We know how (laughs) these House Republicans and Senate Republicans are with their whistleblowers. And this whistleblower apparently claimed Biden was involved in a criminal scheme with a foreign national. We have the Department of Justice sentencing recommendations for the Oath Keepers. I've been waiting for this. These got the ones that were convicted of seditious conspiracy and others and a verdict in the months long Proud Boys trial. And then we also wrapped up arguments, closing arguments in the E. Jean Carroll case. But first, we want to thank our patrons. You make this show possible. If you are a patron, thank you very much. And thanks to all our patrons who came out to our cocktail reception in D.C. And, um, you you know, we seriously couldn't do this without you. It's for as little as a buck an episode. You can sign up for as little as a buck an episode at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's aisle four five pod. And whatever name you use to sign up, we will read on the air. And this week, we have um, Tamara Musius, Michelle Pelster, Joan Robbins, Kevin McKenney, Troston Oso-Fluffy Phil, uh, Virginia Scharf, Stephanie Fleck, B. Golig, Rebecca Jill Smith, Lamb Chop, excellent, Bridget Goldsmith McKee, and Martha Benedict. I hope I didn't mispronounce any of your names. Again, thank you so much to our patrons. Seriously, uh, I couldn't do this without you. Pete couldn't do this without you. You make it possible. So let's start, Pete, with Georgia. At least eight fake electors in Georgia have accepted immunity deals <laughs> in the Fulton County DA's ongoing and criminal criminal investigation into Trump and his allies. Now, background here, we know that Fonnie Willis filed a motion to remove fake elector lawyer DeBro because there were conflicts within the ranks of the 10 fraudulent electors that she was representing. And then Kathy Latham, a fraudulent elector herself, represented by DeBro, filed a motion to join Donald Trump's 51-page weird lawsuit asking the court to throw out the special purpose grand jury report, quash future indictments, um, anything resulting from the work of the special purpose grand jury should be quashed. Um, And 
What's important about Kathy Latham is she was the person who aided and abetted the Trump campaign's theft of voting machine data in Coffee County. I was thinking if there were, you know, fraudulent electors turning on each other, it might be her. And her filing to join Trump's lawsuit tells us she's probably not one of the electors that got an immunity deal. (laughs) No, probably not. (laughs) And we know about the eight immunity deals from a filing made by the elector's lawyer, Debreu. This is the one Fonnie Willis wants removed from the case. And this was her filing that was due May 5th in response to Fonnie Willis's motion to have her removed as a lawyer. Fonnie Willis's response to Trump's lawsuit is due May 15th. It was May 1st, but the judge, Judge McBurney, extended it to May 15th because Kathy Latham wanted to join in on this lawsuit filed by Trump. Uh, This immunity was offered last month, and Dubrow claims in her filing that none of her clients are incriminating one another. She also claims that she did offer the immunity deal to her clients, and they turned it down. Um, And talk to me for a second, Pete, because you don't offer immunity unless you get something in return. Yeah, usually that's something that you're going to decide that, hey, I want to strike a deal or I want some ability to go in. And even if it's something as minor as I want to tell you, you know, I'm not, I, I just want to sit down one day and interview with you and under a very limited sort of immunity that whatever I take, they call it queen for a day, right? I'm going to sit down and talk to you and be interviewed and whatever I tell you, you can't use against me. And that's a very limited form of immunity. On the far end is absolute, you know, we we will not prosecute you immunity. But nobody is going to go in there typically and say, well, I just want immunity because. Usually that is part, you know, both on the part of the potential witness slash target slash subject on the one hand, but also the government. The government isn't going to throw around immunity just because there's usually, you know, that's that's there for a reason. There's a strong reason. You know, I don't, she says that none of her clients are incriminating one another. One another. I don't know how she knows that. And that when she says, well, you know, she did offer the immunity deal to all of them, they turned it down. Well, let's see, because that is not what Fonnie Willis said in her motion, or at least intimated in her motion, and that's something very easy for the court to find out. Just get them, you know, get all of them to sign an affidavit or, you know, otherwise state whether or not they were offered. But something here really smells in the stuff that DeBrow is doing. I can't believe that just the fact now that they're saying you have eight people who have entered and and obtained a uh, immunity agreement tells me that they weren't initially offered that because they would have taken it back at the time. So something here doesn't add up. And it, it sure looks to me like it's something that is not adding up on DeBro's side. Yeah. And and David Schaefer, who heads the Georgia GOP, and the Georgia GOP is the one paying for DeBro, uh, or at least was paying for DeBro. So this could be testimony um, from these um, electors offered immunity that are cooperating. They could This could be testimony against one or two electors for other crimes, like Kathy Latham, for example, perhaps. Uh, It could be testimony against David Schaefer, who had to get a whole new lawyer (laughs) last year because he was differently situated than these other 10. And what's interesting is there's some breaking news out right now, Pete, from uh, Zachary Cohen um, expanding on some news from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution earlier this morning. uh, And from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution... David Schaefer, chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, uh, was following legal advice and broke no laws when he cast a contingent electoral college vote for Donald Trump. And that's according to Schaefer's lawyer. Schaefer's lawyers have written a letter to District Attorney Fannie Willis. Um, And that's important because 
you know, Georgia works a little bit different um, than the, than the feds do than New York does, but uh, apparently it's kind of the same deal. You get a last ditch, argue, you know, chance to argue your case when you're about to be indicted. And Zachary Cohen on Twitter has confirmed that David Schaefer is going to be one of the fraudulent electors that's going to be indicted. Um, and let me actually read from the tweet. I don't want to get it wrong. Here's what Zachary Cohen said. Sources have told me um, that Schaefer could be among those indicted by Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis can confirm Schaefer's lawyer sent the letter to the DA's office arguing he should not be charged in part because he was following advice of pro-Trump attorneys. So this looks like perhaps this letter is one of those last ditch attempts to argue that you shouldn't that your your client shouldn't be uh, indicted. And of course, his lawyer is Holly Pearson, who was works at the same firm as Dubrow. Um, and was told, you know, they have to split up and and represent these folks separately because they're differently situated by Judge McBurney. That's what Judge McBurney decided. Some of the other testimony uh, could be testimony against go-betweens, organizers of the fraudulent electors like Rudy or Boris Epstein or whoever told them, you know, go ahead and sign the certificate and send it up to the National Archives, you know, even though that's mail fraud, send it up to Congress. Uh, everything will be fine. You'll be fine. Uh, but I don't know that necessarily any of this testimony from these fraudulent electors would be against Trump directly. But I don't know. I mean, we just don't know at this point. Yeah. And there's a lot. You're you're absolutely right. There's a lot. I mean, it could be the absence of knowing something or the absence of something, right? So if, if, if somebody like Schaefer was saying, oh, no, this is all legitimate. Everybody knew about it. This is what we were trying to do. But in reality, this was actually a conspiracy among a subset of people and they knew what they were doing was wrong. That immunity and that testimony could simply be some elector saying, no, I never heard that, right? You know, I was never never part of a discussion. This was not a big plan that everybody agreed to that was above board. I never heard of such a thing. So, I mean, we're really, really going out on a limb and to, you know, to, to I would caution heavily that just because any of these fake electors received an, an immunity deal does not mean that they otherwise were imminently in peril of being charged. Some of them maybe, many of them, all of them, maybe not. We just don't know at this point what it is that they have to say. I will say, again, even if they weren't necessarily going to be charged, you're not going to make an immunity deal just because. You're doing that because as a prosecutor, you want something. You're mm -hmm. doing that as a witness slash potential subject or target, you want something in return. So this isn't just a, it means something, right? But it doesn't, we we really don't know until we get more information. And maybe we'll get, you know, we'll, we'll start getting a little more information when uh, Fonnie Willis files her response on the 15th. We'll have some idea potentially of what they're saying. But at this point, there's just a lot that we don't know. But eight's, eight's a lot. I mean, that's a huge, yeah. that's a huge number. So All right, I, because it, these these electors might not have known that you couldn't, sign an alternate certificate or be an alternate elector, whereas the people who instructed them to do so may have known and there might be evidence they may have known. We, we had, for example, Pennsylvania actually put in their fake certificate, hey, this is only if the election is somehow overturned by the courts and the lawsuits that are in litigation right now. We are not saying we are the true electors right now. We're saying in case the other electors are thrown out, then we're the electors. Georgia didn't do that. Georgia was like, we are the electors. We're the real ones. And they mailed it up and sent it out to, to Nara, Nara and uh, 
and Congress. So we'll see how it all shakes out. Um, and, and I know that when Jack Smith, who's looking at all the states, uh, puts this together, we may see that differentiation, right? Like Nevada and Pennsylvania said, hey, they acknowledged they weren't the true electors. Y'all, the rest of you didn't. Um, and you were told otherwise. But it really kind of depends on what they knew. It's it's the Christina Bob clause in the affidavit about the search of Mar-a-Lago, right? And it's like, as far as I know and what other people have told to me, it was all searched and turned over. But, you know, again, I, I think that's uh, that that's absolutely right. I think Georgia and what was worded, there's a lot, a lot more room for sort of mischief and criminal culpability than, you know, when you start putting caveats in there, you, you start building. I mean, it's smart luring whoever wrote that. But um, I don't think, hopefully at some point, this is something that is addressed by Jack Smith, that we see sort of the totality of the effort and whether or not it was coordinated at a national level. You know, certainly whether there are congressional stewards of this whole process, that it wasn't just any particular state that, you know, people like Eastman and others were coordinating a broad effort across various states. And you'll get an idea, like when you watch Georgia and when you read the Georgia filings, you understand what's going on there and you might see illustrations into people like what Rudy said or was charged, it gets charged with a Boris Epstein, if and when both of them are charged, might see some national sort of mm-hmm. thought. But until Jack Smith comes in to say, look, here is the sort of overarching coordinated picture, that's something that we're going to need to wait uh, to hear about, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And we know Boris Epstein spent two days talking to <laughs> talking to the feds at the Department of Justice, not the grand jury, but with prosecutors. Uh, and I know he didn't spend two days pleading the fifth or only talking about documents. So we'll see what ends up happening there. So something else is happening um, in the, the, you know, the New York Attorney General Tish James filed the $250 million fraud lawsuit, civil suit against the Trump organization and Trump and his children. And and, and we have news in, in that investigation as well. Yeah. And it's interesting because it, what it, this comes in the form of a letter which New York Attorney General uh, Tish James sent to the court saying, look, Trump and all three of his kids failed to hand over documents uh, that they were supposed to turn over. And in particular, it points out and highlights the behavior from Ivanka saying there was an unexplained drop off in production from her. And shockingly enough, she swapped out her lawyers. And that is the point at which suddenly the document production seemed to wane. And so Back in May of 2022, so like last year, a full year ago, the judge held Donald in contempt ultimately for $110,000 for failing to turn over documents. And they, you know, kind of said, well, yeah, whatever, you know, we missed the April 30th deadline, but we're not stonewalling. It just takes time, which is, of course, complete BS. But here we are now, a year after that, and the government, New York government and attorney general is saying we still don't have all that, all the information that we should have. So what's interesting there is not only do they believe they don't have it, they have a reason to believe it. So there's something in there that they've seen either through witness testimony or through other documents or other things that have been produced or turned over, whether, you know, to them and or in other matters that leads them to believe they don't have it all. This isn't just a speculative, uh, well, we think there should be more in it, more than that. There is some indication somehow that they feel and believe that tangibly with, you know, some some reason behind it that they don't have all of it. Now, the judge ruled that all of the Trumps, all all the kids and Donald himself must submit affidavits detailing how they've 
complied with discovery and set a new deadline for this week, May 12th, for all the Trumps to hand over all the outstanding documents. And of course, you know, that's important. It isn't just some, you know, filing by their attorneys. These are in affidavits signed by all of them. So they're attesting to this is what we searched and how we did it. And then also, you know, setting a deadline to hand over outstanding documents. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I would be shocked, frankly, if by the end of this week, Trump and all three of the kids actually have that done and have everything ready to turn over. It would not surprise me in the least if they come in like they did last year and saying, oh, yeah, sorry, we missed a deadline. It just takes a lot of time and do the, you know, play the same delay game. But it's a big deal. And, you know, what is still out there presumably is the... You know, it's easy to turn over the stuff that isn't particularly damning if you're going to withhold things intentionally. Typically, it's those those items that are going to be inculpatory or embarrassing or damaging. So we'll see what, if anything, they turn over. Yeah, I think my favorite part is we're not stonewalling a year later. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, sounds pretty typical. Pretty pretty par for the course for the Trump, Trump clan. Uh, all right, we have a lot more news to get to, uh, but we need to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right. And some particularly concerning news to me, a former FBI agent and supervisor named Jared Wise has been arrested for his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. During the riot, 
Wise, who's 50 years old, he's, uh, he's not a, a young agent, ex-agent by any uh, stretch of the imagination, called the Capitol Police Gestapo Nazis. And from behind a wall of people who were pushing uh, against the line was chanting, kill them, kill them, kill them. Now, stepping back from his activities on January 6th, from 2004 until 2017, Wise worked on public corruption and counterterrorism matters at the FBI field offices in Washington, D.C. and New York. And in fact, according to some reporting while he was in New York, he actually supervised a squad that was looking into and investigating homegrown radicalization. So you couldn't get a person more sort of wired into the terrorist environment in and around New York City, looking at all the various factors that were going into creating homegrown violent extremism. I mean, he supervised a squad who was investigating that. Now, during his career, he was briefly detailed to Libya, I think for reportedly about two weeks uh, uh, of time, to help agents investigate the attack in Benghazi, Libya in 2012 that killed four Americans. He left the bureau, uh, reportedly after his supervisors in New York became unhappy with his work. Now, shortly after leaving the FBI, again, according to reporting from the New York Times, he joined the conservative group Project Veritas under the supervision of a former British spy and MI6 alleged MI6 officer by the name of Richard Seddon, who had been recruited by the security contractor Eric Prince to train Hmm. operatives at a secret Prince training facility in the, I think, either Montana or Wyoming, I think. And his work, Wise's work, as part of that effort was to infiltrate trade unions Democratic congressional campaigns and other targets. While it was at Project Veritas, that's the little part that blew my mind. That that Project Veritas was being supervised by Richard Seddon, who was recruited by Eric Prince to train operatives. Like, yeah, yeah, and and again, training them. And you've got the tradecraft. Think about it. You've got somebody who is a former British intelligence officer. And all the tradecraft he was he learned and was trained on and developed over the course of his work for the Brits. You now have apparently Jared Wise, who was an FBI agent who went down to Quantico, who was trained, who went out for 13 years of a career, at least a significant chunk of that, investigating terrorism, knowing how the FBI investigates all the FBI's sort of techniques and procedures, how they do surveillance, how they investigate somebody, potentially taking all of that knowledge into this group run by Eric Prince. And were being run by, used by Project Veritas to, to infiltrate all these various groups. Now, you know, of course, it, it gets, you know, kind of even more you know, goofy. While at Project Veritas, Wise apparently used the code name Bindghazi. And in, it was at Wyoming. And he was not only training with people, you know, the question in my mind, certainly from a, you know, if I'm the FBI, if I'm DOJ, I've got a question, you know, broadly about, is there an issue with radicalization within the ranks of the FBI or federal law enforcement? And two, specifically to Wise, when he was training out in Wyoming, how much did he share? That's my question, right? Did he teach these folks how not to get caught? You know, like, was he giving them inside information about what the FBI had on this specific group? Because we knew they were investigating them. So, like, that's what sort of blows my mind. And that's why I'm really interested to see where this investigation goes. Uh, by de- by the Department of Justice, um, what was he training people on? Right, like because he's got a really broad knowledge of of how FBI sources and methods, how they investigate and infiltrate uh, extremist groups, which is currently the number one threat, um, according to DHS and uh, you know the intelligence community. So that's 
like, and I, you know, I've been waiting to see how Eric Prince was going to come into this, of course. Yeah, I don't know how Prince has skated and escaped any sort of prosecution from all these different activities, going back to his meeting in the Seychelles, whether or not that was, you know, a, a criminal activity, but everything from weapon sales and whether or not he was engaged in, you know, ITAR and, and export control violations for weapons to doing things like this. And again, Allison, these were not, this wasn't, you know, kind of a, a one-off like democratic convention somewhere. These were, he was a group assigned to infiltrate teacher unions in Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, Kentucky, according to a former Project Veritas employee. So this isn't just some one small operation. This is something that Project Veritas was allegedly doing all around the U.S. And I, I absolutely agree with you. When you look, I mean, the things that I know, the things that an FBI agent knows both defensively and offensively, how to, on the one hand, investigate somebody, all the little nuts and bolts of how you surveil somebody, all the techniques you can use from, you know, kind of how to recruit sources around somebody, how to develop the pattern of life of a target, how to get their trash and go through it, how to look and, you know, do surveillance and, and derive intelligence from that to the defensive side of things, right? If you're doing this and you're worried that the FBI might be investigating you, here are the things you can do to make it harder for the FBI to investigate. So there's a potentially a huge amount of information that Wise has in his head and that I don't think we have good answers to how much he did or didn't share. And it's important specifically for him but it also points to an issue, you know, there are these, you know, alleged whistleblowers, and we're going to talk about some of the congressional committee nonsense later, but, you know, these sort of former disgruntled or current FBI employees, <laughs> whether or not they're whistleblowers, and it doesn't seem like they are, you know, it's one thing if you're sort of talking to Congress and being, you know, a malcontent, but we know somebody at least has provided to some non-government uh, employees on the sort of far right wing internal FBI emails during COVID, in particular from Washington field office that went through and named a bunch of FBI employees and things that were going on. So the question broadly, as you step back from this is not just wise, but how big a problem is there within the FBI, within you know, pick pick any sort of, you know, this is not to cast aspersions, but, you know, within DHS, within the Secret Service, within the DEA, I, you know, is this an issue or not? And what are those organizations doing to combat it? And, you know, same question for DOD, right? But th there, there is, I think this clearly points to the fact that there is a significant risk here. And I sure hope that all these organizations are taking a very hard look at what sort of issues they may have and what they're going to do to identify it and mitigate it. Well, every accusation is a confession, right? So here we have for years now, deep state, deep state. Pete, you're part of the deep state. You, Annie McKay, Pete, like everybody, you're all deep state, deep state operatives. When here they are recruiting and training people on a ranch, uh, former FBI agents to, you know, train with a former MI6 guy to train people to infiltrate Democratic you know, institutions. Now, my question is, what kind of charges does this look like? Because I know what 951 is, and I know what FARA is, and I know, um, you know, like 794 espionage, all of those have to do with foreign organizations or foreign governments or forest, foreign terrorist organizations. What is it when you're spying on behalf of a domestic terror organization, since we don't have a legal way to classify something as a domestic terror organization. But we do now know that they participated in seditious conspiracy, for for example. I mean, what kind of charges is that when you're giving 
American trade craft and counterterrorism secrets to domestic terror organizations. What is that? Yeah, well, I mean, first, I think we have to figure out exactly what he did. I mean, we're speculating on sort of the worst case scenario, which it's appropriate to do because you've got to figure out, okay, what's our risk here? What's the risk to FBI operations? If the worst case thing happened, what do we need to do to modify our tactics, techniques, procedures to ensure that we can continue investigating uh, effectively? But it, it is almost certain that, you know, Wise isn't going to just suddenly sit down with an FBI agent and confess to like, oh, yeah, I gave up every last little bit of tradecraft, unclassified and law enforcement sensitive and fact classified I, that I learned while I was in the FBI. I'd be shocked if he said anything like that. You would need to find somebody who was in the inside who potentially could testify and say, well, right. I remember that not only when we were training, he would chime in with his experience at the FBI. And here are some slides that he created for a presentation. That's the kind of thing that you would need from an evidentiary perspective to be able to even start looking at potential criminal charges. And of course, some of that, there's a difference between a classified technique, which would be an unauthorized disclosure of classified information, to the disclosure of something that was unclassified but law enforcement sensitive, which starts getting much harder to prosecute, to something that's just is, you know, is is either there's not enough information or it's not really clear what he did or didn't say and would make it nearly probably impossible to think about charges. Now, there is absolutely the role he's already been arrested for what he did on January 6th. And it will certainly be those charges will be aggravated by the fact that he was a law enforcement officer when it, if he's found guilty and if and when it comes to sentencing. But I do think it, it, it opens, you know, presumably in the context of whatever investigation is being done with regard to Project Veritas, whatever investigation, if any, has been done with Eric Prince or Richard Seddon, this gives additional sort of questions for those investigators to start thinking about and to start asking. So it's it's tough, absent somebody else who comes forward with sort of tangible information that all these things that we're worried about, in fact, happened. But that doesn't just because whether or not the government and the FBI can, DOJ can prove that criminally doesn't mean this isn't an extraordinary concern that needs to be addressed. So, you know, kind of two different you have to approach the risk from the worst case scenario. You you have to approach it with the idea of all these whistleblowers, this guy wise, others, if they're disclosing information outside of an approved whistleblower process to a member of Congress, what is the potential harm to the FBI's operations, to the federal government's operations, and get a sense of what do we need to fix immediately right now? And then the longer term question, how do we identify this? either when we're hiring people, when we're doing security background investigations, when we're doing five-year reinvestigations, when we're out there doing sort of passive monitoring of social media and other things for, of employees, how do we figure out what the scope of the problem is, if any, and clearly there is at least some issue, and how do we address that in a long-term way? Because I don't, I think to me, if that would be a huge, and I'm sure is a current ongoing huge concern within, you know, the seventh floor at the J. Edgar Hoover building about how, how big an issue is this? And who- Yeah, well, we had the other FBI guy from the New York field office uh, getting in trouble. And I mean, it's, it's you know, there seems to be a pattern here. <laughs> so uh, it'll be interesting to see um, how the Department of Justice investigates this uh, and what comes out of it. Um, we, we'll see. I, I think I'm, I'm with you. I think it's an aggravating factors to what he's being arrested for. Um, but, you know, we could see 
superseding indictments um, for him. But we'll we'll have to wait and see. You know, I don't think Seddon counts as a foreign agent. Uh, he's a former British spy. Uh, I don't think you know we're working on behalf of our uh, long adversary, King Charles the Third. Uh, but you know, regardless, um, it's going some you know some statutes if if classified was released and it has to do with a, a somebody who's a, a foreign entity. Does it have to be a government? Uh, does it have to be an adversary? All of that's going to come out in in this investigation, and I I'm I'm. I have confidence that the investigation will be thorough. Yeah. And just a real quick note on Sen. It's interesting when that, it was a New York Times story that actually broke it. It was interesting. If you go and you look at 951, it's actually, it would apply to Sen. It is any, one of the categories is anybody who is trained in essentially intelligence tradecraft, who then comes in and is teaching or engaging in that has to register with DOJ, with the attorney general. And if they don't, then they're subject to potential criminal penalty under 951. And so the question was, does this, if true, as reported by the New York Times back when they reported that Seddon, in fact, is a former uh, and a former MI6 officer, was he actually here in the United States? Was he actually conducting intelligence training? And did he fail to register with the attorney general? He very well might face criminal culpability. The question was at the time you had, you know, I think it was, you know, Attorney General Bill Barr, the you know, very, very vigorously looking to investigate, you know, people like this. And I'm dripping with sarcasm as I say that, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know that even if it was potentially a violation, whether or not anybody gave it a serious look. But now with this back on the table, I think it, you know, certainly merits a relook if it was not exhaustively looked at it before. You know, wh what the hell yeah. is going on in Wyoming? And he may have registered with Barr's Department of Justice. Yeah, no, yeah. I, well, at least at the time he hadn't. I don't know if since then he has, oh, okay. but when it came out, he, well, he had not registered. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll look out for that. Could be Farah, could be 951. Um, 951 is a little harder to prove, but who we'll see. Uh, and um, I think that the investigation into Wise will bear that out for us. All right. We have to take another quick break, but we will be right back. We have still a lot of news to go, so stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I wanna act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me in a courtroom how we were at war. 
expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. So in the grand tradition of completely fake whistleblowers <laughs> from congressional Republicans, we have yet another. But this is actually a recycled whistleblower, I'm pretty sure. But a bear, I guess Comer um, from House Oversight and Grassley from Senate Budget are demanding an internal FBI document. Talk, talk to us about this document that Grassley has even admitted doesn't prove anything. Uh, Grassley, while he mumbles through the, you know, the oatmeal from breakfast that he still got dripping off his chin. I, you know, this is that. So what they, <laughs> they've asked for is for all FD 1023 forms. Now, the FD 1023 is a form that the FBI uses when you have a source that provides you information, whatever it is, whether it's bona fide, not bona fide, whether they come in and say, hey, I heard a rumor from my friend's brother's bus driver that so-and-so said something, whatever it is. If a source comes in and says something, it gets recorded in what's called an FD-1023. So they are asking for- So like for, when Sussman came into the FBI and talked to Baker and said, hey, you might want to look into <laughs> no, this. No, because Sussman, Sussman wasn't a source, right? But so so this is like- <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> right, yeah. And I'm sure, you know, John, John Durham probably spent, you know, $180,000 of taxpayer money investigating that one specific question. Garland, uh, you know. by the way, is asking, where the fuck is your report? Well, I, <laughs> you know, tell me. It's like, yeah, you know. Well, he actually asked Congress to ask him because he's like, I'm not going to talk to him directly. Congress, can you ask him? So that's fun. Who the hell knows? So, so Comer, though, has asked via subpoena to the FBI, calling for all FD-1023 forms, including within any open, closed, or restricted access case files, listen to this, created or modified in June 2020, containing the term Biden, including all accompanying attachments and documents to those FD-1023 forms. Now, first off, let's, let's just put on our Wayback Time Machine caps and think about who was the Attorney General of the United States of America in charge of the Department of Justice and the FBI in June 2020. No other than the famous Biden apologist, Bill Barr, right? So, so just going back, if there's any, if there was anything even vaguely inculpatory or concerning about the Bidens, Joe, Hunter, anybody, I guarantee you in the June 2020 timeframe, when Barr went so far as to set up a special intake you know, mechanism in the Western <laughs> District of Pennsylvania from anything related to Ukraine. By the way, Grassley, who is calling for this FD-1023 at the same time in June 2020, his biggest source of information was the notorious alleged drunk Rudy Giuliani, who is mm -hmm. palling around with a bunch of Russian agents who is feeding information into the system and happily to Ron Johnson and, you know, Chuck Grassley on during the same time frame. So it sounds like to me that they've got I a, <laughs> you know, a bit of information 
that somebody who was cranky read somewhere that a source said something about Biden and that somehow this represents a smoking gun. But what Alison really sort of like alerts me to the sheer bullshitness of this is how much even people like Comer and other Republicans are not willing to really say what it is or isn't. They're like, well, we don't know. Well, you know, we need to wait and see what the document actually says, because when they're pressed on, what does this actually say? They're unwilling to provide any detail of what it is or how bad it might be. Mm -hmm. And you know what's funny to me is <laughs> this could bite him in the ass. Remember when... Remember when we said, wouldn't it be funny if the only crimes Durham could, could come up with were actual crimes that Trump committed and we found out that he actually found a Trump crime and they decided not to pursue it? I could see Comer asking for June 2020 documents about Biden that he's, he might get some stuff that he doesn't want to get. <laughs> like, you know, because of the fake investigations that that Trump and, and others were trying to to have announced against Biden. You know, don't you don't have to actually investigate, just announce. Remember when he told Zelensky right. that? So that that's what cracks me up the most about this. Is the vice chair of the oversight gonna, committee going to get to see these documents? And what are we going to learn about what was going inside on inside the Trump FBI uh, when they were trying to find any and all investigations into Biden? Yeah. And look, so with with a with a. Democratic DOJ and White House, I am certain that the ranking minority member will get a copy of this as well. And look, what they ask for, what they're alleging is the DOJ and the FBI have an unclassified document that they say in a letter, this is Comer and Grassley, quote, describes an alleged criminal scheme involving then Vice President Biden and a foreign national relating to the exchange of money for policy decisions. But Allison, remember, this is any, like, there, the variety of stuff that a source gives you is huge. I mean, you can have a source walk in and say, hey, I got these seven documents authored by this bad guy. He signed them and his fingerprints are all over them. And here you go. And it's raw evidence all the way on the other side to what I described, right? It's just some complete, hey, I heard a rumor when I was drinking at a bar, overhearing the booth next to me. I couldn't entirely make it out, but it was somebody saying that their sister had heard X. Complete so bullshit. Kind of like the Steele dossier, the way they treat the Steele dossier, so right? It's all, right. It's all, some of it can be really credible. Some of it can be complete nonsense, but just the fact that it shows up in a 1023 doesn't mean anything. And again, keep in mind, a U.S. attorney has been looking, going back to before the Biden administration has been looking at allegations about Hunter Biden and, you know, other things surrounding the whole Biden universe for this entire time. It just yeah, boggles my mind that they wouldn't have heard about it by now. And, you know, Jamie Raskin, God bless him, wrote back, you know, he issued a response saying, quote, committee Republicans are recycling unsubstantiated claims floated by Senate Republicans by issuing a subpoena to the FBI to require the release of a June 2020 tip from an unknown informant. During this same time period, Rudy Giuliani and Russian agents, sanctioned by Trump's Treasury Department, were peddling disinformation aimed at interfering in the 2020 presidential election. Given Chair Comer's commitment to quote-unquote dismantle the FBI, it's no surprise that he would rely on these unverified tips to attack President Biden in one more baseless partisan stunt. That, that pretty much sums it up, along with White House spokesman Ian Sams, uh, who says, 
For going on five years now, Republicans in Congress have been lobbying unfounded, politically motivated attacks against POTUS without offering evidence for their claims or evidence of decisions influenced by anything other than U.S. interests. They prefer in trafficking and innuendo. And what what I kind of see is happening here is that you might get something back from the FBI saying, we're not handing over these documents, um, uh, you know, sorry. And then, of course, the Republicans will have a reason to scream, it's a cover-up, it's a cover-up, you're keeping this document from us. So I, I kind of hope they hand over these these documents with anything with Biden in them. Um, I don't know that they will, but this seems to be a pattern. Ask for a document you know you can't get. Judicial Watch does this all the time. Ask for documents you know you can't get. When you can't get them, claim that it's a cover-up. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and part of me, I, I, I understand seeing it and having giving them the sort of full sunshine and and very frank analysis of what I believe are very likely, you know, BS innuendo. Um, but on the other hand, you know, this every time the FBI turns over source documentation, it damages the ability of the FBI to do its job. And we saw this time exactly. and time again between Barr and Ratcliffe and Ray rolling over and letting Congress have Source document after source document after source document that allowed all these little knucklehead internet sleuths to identify people who had provided information to the FBI in the past. And, you know, why is that bad? One, because those people end up getting, you know, threats and doxxed and swatted. But two, in a longer term sort of perspective, who in their right mind is going to look at this and say in the future, yeah, I'll, I'll volunteer information to the FBI. I'm working mm-hmm. for the Russians or the Chinese in my overt job, and I'm going to put my life at risk and tell the FBI some information because they've proven themselves incapable of preventing Congress from getting information about source identities and making it public. You know, whatever you think of Gina Haspel, she at least with the CIA, you didn't see any CIA assets getting exposed. But the Bureau, yeah. you know, thanks to Bill Barr and Ratcliffe again, I can think of easily three, four more Human sources of the FBI whose identities, you know, without confirming anything, were certainly dug into by people in the public domain based on the information that was released. So in the long term, the more the FBI provides to Congress for these political games about human source reporting, the harder it makes it for the FBI to do its job and to keep getting people to provide information about bad things that are going on and tell them with a straight face in a way that is believable Yeah, I understand you're putting your livelihood or your literal life and safety in our hands. I'm assuring you we can protect it. If this sort of thing keeps going on, nobody can say that with a straight face. And if they do, nobody's going to believe them if they hear it because they can just point and say, oh, yeah, well, what about that stuff you just gave Comer? So we'll, we'll see what they give up. Hopefully they, they take a stand and, you know, do the right thing and protect, you know, the, the human source base of the FBI, which is just such an extraordinarily critical part of what the FBI has to do to do its job, um, because that was just torn apart last administration. Yeah. And if your goal, as the Republicans' goal is, is to dismantle the FBI or make their lives miserable and difficult, one of the good ways to do that is by chilling future you know, cooperators with the FBI or informants for the FBI um, and to chill our foreign um, allies from giving us information uh, and and sharing information with us, like the Five Eyes, for example. So that's um, one of the reasons defending institutions is so important. Number two in Timothy Snyder's book on tyranny. Uh, all right. Uh, we have yet more news to get to. 
Uh, I know it's a long show today, but uh, we'll be right back with the rest of the show. Stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. And this, to me, is one of the more important, if not one of the most important news stories, at least in the last few weeks, definitely this year. And that is the sentencing recommendations for the Oath Keepers. We've been talking about this for a very long time now because I've been very interested in how the Department of Justice was going to approach calculating the sentences for people convicted of seditious conspiracy because it is such a rare um, statute to be used by the Department of Justice. I think the last time we used it was in the 90s or something like that, or maybe 2008, with like five times in the last 100 years or something like that. Um, it's a Civil War era uh, law statute um, that we got seditious conspiracy convictions is a massive major win in and of itself, especially considering how Mike Sherwin wanted to fuck it all up for everybody in the beginning. Uh, but um, Garland was able to come in and, and button up that case and, and, and secure these convictions. So the sentencing recommendations, the three things I was looking for, and I, I've been waiting to see Pete, is whether or not, because there is no guideline for seditious conspiracy, I was going to see if they would go the treason route to look at what treason is to determine what, how long these guys should serve uh, in, you know, as a prison term. I also wanted to know if people convicted of multiple felonies, including multiple 20-year max felonies, like obstructing an official proceeding and seditious conspiracy, 
whether the Department of Justice was going to recommend that those sentences be served concurrently or consecutively. And then I was also wanting to find out if they were going to add a domestic terror enhancement or just a terrorism enhancement. It's not necessarily domestic or not. Uh, and wow, the DOJ really came through on this one. You know, when I when I when I was telling you early on, I don't know that they're going to charge seditious conspiracy. I think they'll play it safe. I think they'll play it safe and charge them with obstructing an official proceeding or conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. And then, bam, they come out with seditious conspiracy charges. Well, this sentencing recommendation is the cherry on top of that uh, Sunday because they went all out uh, on this one. They're throwing they're throwing the proverbial book at at these oath keepers charged with seditious conspiracy. Uh, the, they do use treason to calculate the sentence for seditious conspiracy, but not the treason statute, not the treason guidelines, because in order to use the treason guidelines, you have to have waged war against the United States. And this didn't qualify. But they went through the treason guideline to take them to obstruction of justice, um, which is what they will use to sentence uh, for seditious conspiracy. So they did go through the treason path to come to come to the obstruction of justice guidelines. They did ask for a terrorism enhancement, which is called a note four, uh, which adds significant, I think, six levels, a lot of levels to the to the sentencing recommendations. And they did ask for the sentences to be served consecutively up to a point. Um, and I, I do go over that in detail in Monday's episode of Daily Beans. I go through the entire 183 page <laughs> filing. It's a yeah, I was going to say it's a and long And talk filing. about how that math was was added up. But man, they are really trying to deter uh, this from happening again. They're separating them from everybody else who was at the Capitol and saying this, you know, this is seditious conspiracy. They need to be sentenced like other seditious conspirators have been sentenced in the past. We need to do these consecutively up to the maximum point that we can have these served consecutively for multiple felony convictions. Uh, they grouped them together in certain ways. And they came up with, for Stuart Rhodes, for example, I believe, a, a, a level 39, which is a 22 to 28-year sentence. So they went with 25, which is just above the midpoint there. And he is uh, the highest uh, recommended sentence. Kelly Meggs is at 21 years, and they, they they go down from there with the nine. But just an absolutely, I thought, really well-written, um, very aggressive, uh, but not outside of the realms of justice aggressive, you know, within the four corners of the sentencing guidelines aggressive. Uh, and I, I'm very, very pleased with the outcome of these sentencing recommendations. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think what DOJ is trying to do is like underline and it's throughout that just a very detailed uh, sentencing recommendation that just what a threat to democracy these uh, violations of law were. This isn't just some, you know, aggravated assault, but they go turning time and time again to the idea, you know, there's one quote that, you know, the the left unchecked, this impulse threatens our democracy. So they highlight throughout the the memorandum just the idea of like at its core, what a threat that behavior of Rhodes and others represented not just to any, you know, to to Congress or the transfer of power, but to the to democracy itself. And I think appropriately so. It's it's easy to, you know, everybody talks in hyperbole, but when you take a step back and look at the activities that these folks are convicted of now, right? These aren't alleged anymore. They've been convicted of these various acts. At its core, they were fundamentally a profound threat to American democracy and not just to punish 
those folks who did it, but also again, you know, the the idea of a, a criminal sentence one is to punish the offender, but also to serve as a deterrent effect. And DOJ mentions that as well. You know, they quote in there that you know this is Jeffrey Nessler, who's the author. As this court is well aware, the justice system's reaction to January 6th bears the weighty responsibility of impacting whether January 6th becomes an outlier or a watershed moment. So the DOJ is saying to the court, look, you can't, you need to sentence Rhodes and others not just to punish them, but you have to send the message that this sort of behavior, this sort of illegal activity that threatens the core of our democracy is unacceptable. And we're at a point right now where so many Americans are, have questions about whether or not this is legitimate or not. You have to impose a stiff sentence to tell Americans, no, this isn't appropriate. No, it's not acceptable. So I, I thought it was well written. <laughs> of course, <laughs> Rhodes comes in, his lawyer, of course, asks for, you know, not well, no, one year, two. No, 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 no. Time served. Says, well, the Oath Keepers, they're a humanitarian organization. And Stuart Rhodes, he was a straight-A student, and he's a disabled veteran. So all this time he's spent in jail so far, that's more than enough. So just let him go with that. So, I, you know, that, again, it's kind of audacious in its, uh, <laughs> you know, demand for time served. I guess I'm not surprised, but it just goes to show the, you know, I don't know well, whether that's, that's- like haggling, like, oh, yeah, I really want to buy that Picasso. All right, I'm selling it for $1.2 million. And the guy goes, all right, how about zero? <laughs> yeah. How about there, just give I, it to me? <laughs> $17 and these 14 cents I have in my pocket. Yeah. And it, my it just, I, wrist you know, I, yeah. it's something like that. I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's the kind of thing. If you're, you've got to decide, you know, are you screwed regardless? Because something like that's going to aggravate the judge, right? I mean, if you're, if you're trying to, the if you're a judge and you're trying to understand whether or not this convicted person who you have the weighty responsibility of imposing a sentence whether or not they understand what they did whether or not they have any remorse when they come in and say yeah fuck you judge i've done enough time as is just let me go right now it, it i i don't i don't think it's it, it's not going to sit well maybe they figured they had nothing to lose who knows but it just it's well, DOJ puts on a very good long case about why he should have no downward departure for accepting responsibility because he none of them did. Um, and I think that what stood out to me in this filing, and this might portend badly for Donald Trump or the architects of this uh, attempted coup, the fraudulent electors, whatever, whichever part of this, you know, thing you want to tie them to. But the DOJ here says that even though all nine of the Oath Keepers weren't convicted of conspiracy. Some of them were found not guilty on seditious conspiracy or conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Uh, that doesn't matter because all nine were part of the conspiracy. They were all members of the conspiracy. And if you're a member of the conspiracy, you are liable for the actions of your co-conspirators. And I think that that is sort of a little fear of God poke over on onto the Trump side or the architect side. To be like, look, you don't you don't have to be even convicted of a conspiracy, conspiracy to defraud the United States, for example, conspiracy, seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to let's let's talk about Donald Trump and conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, you know, 1512 C2, but conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding uh, because you can put a conspiracy kicker on that, um, even if he's acqu acquitted of that conspiracy. He could still, and Eastman is found guilty, uh, but he's found guilty of other charges. 
because he was part of the conspiracy and a member of the conspiracy, he is liable for Eastman's actions if you look at it in a legal way. And I think that that's really important to understand. DOJ spells it out in this memo. I go over it in detail uh, on the Daily Beans. But this ban, this this memo, I can't, I can't, I can't express the gravity of it. Like nobody's covering it. I can't believe it. You know that that this isn't like one of the number one stories, particularly in light of what we found out about the Allen Texas shooter and his ties to extremist groups and and, and things like that, and and how this sort of based on what Judge Amit Mehta does with this, we could hopefully have a chilling effect on that kind of terroristic action in the future, particularly with the Note 4 terrorist enhancement. And especially, I mean, a lot of these guys are lone wolves, but if you're found as a member of a conspiracy, you're responsible for your fellow conspirators' actions. You're liable. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is something in there that was written in the idea of whether or not it was targeted at Donald Trump or whether it was designed to talk to the public about the role of Donald Trump. I mean, in in the sentencing memo, uh, memo prosecutors talked about polling data from this year that said that one in five Americans believe political violence is sometimes justified and one in 10 believes it would be justified if it meant the return of President Trump. So again, they're, they're, they're highlighting to the court like, Again, it isn't just about punishing these individuals for what they did. It is sending a message that this behavior is unacceptable, that it's illegal, that it's a threat to the democracy in the United States, and it is directly a result of Trump and his calls to violence and the things that he was doing. So they're they're drawing this line, it seems to me, that you know what a threat it is to democracy, and it is a threat that goes straight up and all the way to Donald Trump himself, and that that is what is creating this unacceptable belief on a huge chunk of the American population that somehow, well, this violence might be justified. And in fact, it's not. It's illegal. It's a, a, a profound threat to democracy. And I, I think they said that very clearly and very effectively. So we'll see where Judge mm-hmm. Meta goes. Um, it'll, it's still going to be a while, I think, before the actual sentencing, but I, you know, again, I, do I think that, uh, that the Stuart Rhodes is going to get 25 years? No. Do I think he is going to get, you know, beyond 15? I think there's a decent chance he's looking at 15, 20. So we'll see. But again, yeah, that- I was thinking 17 and 19, uh, but that's why he's able to, they're able to ask for more than 20 years is because they want that consecutively thing. And they can do that because of things like the need for deterrence. And I mean, they spell it all out. It's 183 pages. There's so much case law and so much. They even said, hey, 13 out of 15 times judges have agreed with us that this was a substantial um, impediment to the administration of justice. And so when you have when it's substantial like that, you know, you can add these enhancements uh, and 15 out of 13 out of 15 judges have done that in previous January 6th um, cases for folks charged with obstructing an official proceeding. We're talking about seditious conspiracy here. So we want it consecutively. We want to add everything. We want to add note for terrorism. Uh, and we have to deter this from happening. And the scope and the fact that these guys were leaders. I mean, it's just it's a pretty incredible, uh, incredible filing. And I, I think it's way more newsworthy than um, 
the way that it's being treated by the mainstream, by legacy media this week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> completely agree. And I have to add a caveat for everybody who's listening, hearing a dog barking in the background, that's Max. He gets very agitated when I talk about sentencing guidelines. So, no, that's not. Mm, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's staring at something interesting in the in the backyard. But uh, my apologies for Max. Max, the sentencing guideline dog, is is uh, He's agreeing with in. deterrence. The need <laughs> for deterrence is what he's, <laughs> he's right. agreeing with. Um, also... This is going to have an impact on the Proud Boys and their sentencing recommendations. And that is news. That is breaking news from this week. The Proud Boys were found, all of them, guilty of seditious conspiracy, except for, I shouldn't say all of them, except for Dominic Pozzola. And the reason that they didn't find Dominic Pozzola guilty, he's the guy who took the shield and broke the window, is because he didn't really hang out that much for a very long time with the rest of the Proud Boys. But the important part here is that Enrique Tario was found guilty of seditious conspiracy. And not only was he not in the Capitol that day, he wasn't in Washington, D.C. that day. He was at a hotel in Baltimore because he had been told to leave because, you know, he had been arrested for other crimes. Uh, so Enrique Tario, not on, you know, not in town that day, can still be convicted of seditious conspiracy. And I think we're going to see the the sentencing guidelines bear out the same kind of thing, perhaps even longer sentences, uh, because I think the DOJ considers the Proud Boys the tip of the spear. This was a more than a three month long trial, uh, and the jury came back with these convictions. But all of them were found guilty of obstructing an official proceeding. So it, it came out a lot like the first Oath Keepers case. Uh, so we'll see how those sentencing guidelines pan out as well. And I I, I wouldn't be surprised if the one that we saw for the Oath Keepers isn't kind of used as a template for what comes out for the Proud Boys sentencing recommendations too. But it's going to be a while because they have to file their briefs. They have to meet and talk about, you know, their finances and they have to do all the filings and the sentencing recommendations and the the probation office has to have its meetings and make its recommendation to the Department of Justice. It's a long process, but we will get there. We do have the Oath Keepers though. And again, I, I highly recommend you check it out. All right. Um, Anything else? Any final thoughts on on Proud Boys and Oath Keepers here today? No, just I, the Proud Boys is a huge deal, and I, I don't know why it, it had a little bit of coverage. But I think when you look at the complexity of that whole enterprise and the case that DOJ put on with all these defendants, with a bunch of hard to you know you can't sum it up neatly. There's a lot of information from a lot of sources. As you noted, Tario wasn't even in DC when some of the activity occurred. You know, for DOJ to get this just home run of a verdict really speaks to one, an incredible job by DOJ, by those investigators. But two, shows that, you know, this was an extraordinary threat. And I think, yeah, you know, Pozzola wasn't found guilty of seditious conspiracy, but he was found guilty of you know, a violent, uh, impeding, assaulting, or resisting certain officers. So his sentence is going to be, you know, very significant as well. But just a huge case for DOJ, both because of what it took to get those guilty verdicts, as much as it also points to sort of path forward with other folks further up the chain. Yeah. And it's worth noting, Merrick Garland, 100% uh, conviction rate <laughs> for January 6th. Just throwing that out there. That do-nothing garland. Okay, um, we, we have uh, one little last bit of thing I want to talk about. The, the closing arguments were today, and the E. Jean Carroll, uh, she, you know, she sued Donald for a civil case for rape and defamation, and we had the closing arguments today. They were, Takapina went 
went with the old uh, blame the victim route, which I think was probably a very big mistake for him. And uh, Robbie Kaplan did the closing uh, argument. And then Ferrara came in and finished up with a rebuttal that was just perfect. And I think that the big standout moment for me was what they're trying to tell you is that there's a perfect rape victim. They have to scream. They have to have be miserable for the rest of their lives. They have to, you know, they're trying to make you believe that there is a way that a rape victim has to behave in order for the, it to be, um, you know, a credible, a credible assault. So I, I thought it was very well done. And uh, the, starting at 10 a.m. on Tuesday, I know you're listening to this Wednesday, but the jury will start deliberating 10 a.m. on Tuesday. I have no idea how long they'll be out. I, I, I imagine at least a day, but I, I really don't know. Given the makeup of the jury, I think they'll deliberate for a day or two at least, but we'll see. Uh, but we may be able to, we may get a verdict by the end of the week. We just don't know, uh, but they do have that case. Yeah. And I think you highlighted, I think in a tweet, um, one of the, what struck me as a very compelling argument by E. Jean Carroll's team that, look, to, if if you want to believe Trump, that means you have to believe not one, not two, but three different women all got up on the stand and perjured themselves, right? They swore to tell the truth and each and every one of them lied about sexual assault. And you compare that to Trump where he played games where he went, you know, Tecapina initially said, well, look, he, he's he's not going to testify. Trump, he's on some, you know, ribbon cutting for another alleged, you know, money laundering venture out in some golf course in, in uh, Ireland and says, <laughs> oh, I'm going to go back, this crazy person, I'm going to go back and expose all of the lies. Gets put on deadline by the judge to Tecapina saying, look, is he or isn't he going to testify? Shockingly enough, guess what? Trump was lying in Ireland. He was not going to testify. He did not testify. So the argument I thought was great at closing is like, all right, so you heard. He wouldn't even come and look you in the eye. And tell <clears> he you wouldn't he didn't come and do it. right. He wouldn't look you in the eye. He would not say a single word to you under oath. And you had these multiple individuals all under oath, all talking about this behavior. And you really want to believe that this person who refused to come in here and say word one, who has a demonstrated history of mistruth, untruth, lies, compared to these three folks who stood in front of you swearing to tell the truth, saying, in fact, the truth. And I think that, you know, as And as there's a that juror, adverse inference, right? Because right. we know at the beginning of the trial, Takapina wrote a letter saying, you should tell the jury not to draw a negative inference about my client because he won't show up. And the judge says, you know, you can bring that up at the time. I'm not going to tell them that. And here, the uh, Ferreira, I think it was for for E. Jean Carroll, argued he, you know, argued that negative inference, that adverse inference. He was he wouldn't show up, couldn't bother to be here, wouldn't put himself under oath, wouldn't look you in the eye and tell him he didn't do it. Uh, and there was no objection from from Taco Pants. He wasn't like, hey, objection. Let's talk about this, you know, negative inference thing. Now he just didn't say a word. Uh, I'm not sure why not. Maybe he thinks he's already lost. Maybe he thinks it doesn't matter. He's already done what he wanted to do, which was chill. Because oh, he's a disaster. Fear, yeah, but he's also very dumb. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, Trump's goal here is to chill other people from trying to take him to court, right? So I I don't know, but uh, we, we, we could have a verdict uh, pretty soon. And, and we'll, of course, talk about that Maybe this weekend on our bonus yeah, episode for I, patrons. If yeah. I had to, I mean, it's Monday, and if they get the if they get to deliberations early tomorrow, I think it's. I mean, 
more likely than not that we will certainly, I think, have a, <laughs> By a preponderance uh, have a verdict. Of your yeah, have a, have a verdict this week. I mean, I just I don't think at the end of the day there. You know, this is not this is not a proud boy trial, right? It is not a complex conspiracy. This is you know a fact pattern wise um, civil trial, simpler yeah. in mm-hmm. a civil trial. And so I think you know a couple of days, three days of deliberation, and a, a jury who's going to look at Friday and say, I don't want to come back next week. I mean, I think they'll be done well before Friday, but I think yeah. Come in for the bonus episode, because I think we'll be talking about it. Yeah. And he was like, she just wants money. And they're like, we didn't even ask for an amount of money. We're leaving it up to you. She just wants to have her life back and, you know, wants everybody to know and get her, get you know, clear her good name. Um, So we'll see how it goes. Uh, That is the show. We had so much news today. Thanks for hanging in for the whole hour. We really appreciate it. Uh, And again, thanks to our patrons. You make this possible. Uh, You can sign up at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. A-I-S-L-E, 4-5-P-O-D. Do you have any final thoughts, Pete? No. Looking forward to uh, to what comes out in New York and, again, getting ready for, I think, um, the news and the filing from Fonnie Willis to see what it is she has to say in response to uh, all these fake electors and their immunity deals. Yeah, that'll be May 15th. We may or may not have it. By the time we record next week's episode, we will see. All right, everybody. Until then. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. And this is Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, 
I will launch, you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.